Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today, in our 26th episode, we take on the successors of Alexander. Alexander had a lot of vices and a lot of virtues in the way Plutarch painted him for us. But we're going to see that the way he ruled echoed into the generations after him with probably more vices than virtues, according to Plutarch's perspective. But we're going to look at one of his successors who was a virtuous successor, a virtuous successor who got double-crossed in the end and lost any ability he had to influence Alexander's empire. He just so happened to be the only Greek among those Macedonians as well. And both they noticed and he noticed in the way that Plutarch tells the story. So Eumenes of Cardia is a secretary who turns general, good with pencils, but also in the saddle, since he's usually a cavalry commander. We'll check out exactly what the few years after Alexander's death look like through his eyes. But in the meantime, thank you again for the support of your listening ears and your download Be sure to spread the word, tell others. The best way you can tell me that I'm doing an awesome job in these podcasts is by leaving me the old five-star review. Just drop it on in there. Another way you can encourage me is by stopping by grammaticus.co to see what I'm teaching. I teach Latin and Greek and the great books, and I'm usually most available in the summer, but I also am offering, usually for homeschoolers, different classes and my Offerings there continue to expand. So the last thing you can do is if you have any questions about Plutarch in particular or Latin and Greek generally, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm available on my website or via email, tom at grammaticus.co. I'll just mention here in case you didn't hear the second Alexander episode that I am attempting to slow down a little bit more in these podcasts just because I've been asked to by listeners who can always speed me up but find slowing me down to be a little harder for their podcast app or at least harder to listen to. So realize that if it seems like I'm going slower, it's on purpose, not on accident. Nonetheless, I hope that all of these episodes and the show notes that go with them are encouraging you to continue your journey through Plutarch's lives and helping you see and remember more along the way. Let's dive right in, shall we? Humanes. Humanes. You're like, I've never heard of this guy. How many obscure lives are you going to drag us through, Tom? As many as Plutarch wrote, okay? You're still listening 26 episodes in, so I think you're okay. Who was Humanes? All right. Right away we hear about his education. So remember how Alexander was rooted in that Greek education? He had Aristotle. He had somebody awesome teaching him. Eumenes didn't quite have an Aristotle, but he received a liberal education. You think, oh, that's something we just say for like liberal arts colleges. That's not old. That doesn't go all the way back to the ancient world. The word that Plutarch uses here is eleutherios. That is an education fit for a free man. And it consists of two pieces. Literature, grammasi, 
or literally letters, but letters in the old sense, the way English used to use that. Like, he's a man of letters. Like, he's well-read. And athletics. Or, more specifically, the palaestra. He wrestles. Nod to all you wrestlers out there. I myself have never wrestled, but respect to sport that's thousands of years old. And as a matter of fact, he goes from obscurity to the court of Philip of Macedon when he observes the boy wrestling, talks to him afterwards, and is impressed both by his intelligence and his bravery. He takes him into his household staff. And by the time Alexander is in charge, Eumenes has risen to the title of Archgrammaticus. You're like, what? Seriously? What? He was a grammaticus? No, not quite. He was a grammatius, which is close but is a secretary. Somebody, a grammaticus is a teacher. A grammatius is a secretary, but he's not just a grammatius. He's an archigrammatius. He's an archgrammatius, right? He's an arch secretary. Head secretary, chief secretary is usually how that is described. And you're thinking, why? Why on earth? Plutarch seems to be attracted to men of action, not just men of letters. He didn't do lives of philosophers. He didn't do lives of artists. They might play an important role in the lives of these great men, but he picks men of action. Don't worry. This arch secretary becomes himself a man of action. By the time they reach India, he hands his secretary charge of a cavalry unit, and Eumenes is already getting experience in the saddle before Alexander is dead. But Eumenes is not like a best friend. He's an outsider. That's made most clear because when he disagrees with Hephaestion, remember Alexander's best friend, sad for three days after he died, 10,000 talents spent on his funeral and tomb. Yeah, that guy, a best friend. When Eumenes fights with him, he gets on Alexander's bad side. And so after Hephaestion's death, Alexander's wanting to hold that against him even more. Remember, you didn't like my best friend and now he's dead jerk. Probably not exactly how Alexander said it, but something like that. But Eumenes finds a way out, and we start to see one of Eumenes' virtues is this wiliness and a, a willingness or an ability to use his smarts, to use his practical wisdom, which is another translation of Sophrosune, to ingratiate himself with the people in power, even when he doesn't hold all the cards. So Eumenes is the one that suggests new titles for Hephaestion in death and donates money towards Hephaestion's lavish tomb project. Hmm. Cool. But as we covered in the end of the last episode, right by the third chapter of this life, Alexander's dead. So we just compressed Philip and Alexander hardcore into two little, you know, paragraphs, essentially. And the succession question becomes heated. Like I said in the last episode, they're all in Babylon, all of Alexander's officers. Alexander's dead. It's June. They still have plenty of time for military maneuvers. What are they going to do? The infantry wants to be led by Philip Aridaeus, Alexander's half-brother, another son of Philip. He doesn't seem to be all there in the head. Nobody really knows why, but he's treated as a puppet. Okay? The cavalry and the other officers want the child of Roxana, And Perdiccas, one of Alexander's officers, whom we didn't hear much from in his life, but offers himself as regent. Eumenes plays both sides. He's willing to 
fight for any or either because they both seem to be legitimate successors. One's a brother, the other, it turns out, in August will be the son, two months after Alexander's death, the son of the king. So this is where Eumenes is willing to play both sides because he sees both sides as just. He's not playing both sides in this duplicitous Machiavellian, I just want to get my way sort of way, like, yes, yes. It's not like that. As the other officers start to divide the empire, and they may be motivated by the less than honorable motives I mentioned before, they are supposedly dividing the empire into satrapies. Remember, just like the Persian Empire, it had provinces. Those provinces were called satrapies. Those satrapies were ruled by a satrap. But in reality, these officers are carving up kingdoms for themselves. But not all of them. Eumenes receives Cappadocia, Paphlagonia, and Trapezus. Three areas of the Asia Minor map that I will put in the show notes because, wow, a lot happens in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. So, the better you know the geography there, the better off you'll be. <clears throat> Perdiccas is technically in charge, right? So, he tells Eumenes, hey, you got Cappadocia, Paphlagonia, and Trapezus, right? That's how the dice roll worked out. Problem, though, we haven't fully conquered all of those areas so if you could just go and do that, right? He's not just given a satrap. He's kind of given his first military command after Alexander's death. Two generals are supposed to accompany him there. They will be important for a long time. Or at least one of them will be. Antigonus is one and Leonidas is the other. Antigonus just completely ignores Perdiccas's command. They're like, well, that bodes well for you guys getting along in the future and, you know, creating a harmonious empire that Alexander left to all of you. Leonatus, the other one who's supposed to escort Eumenes in his satrapies, really wants to take Macedonia from Antipater. Remember the guy who was there fighting against Olympia? Olympias? Right, that guy. He really wants to go to Macedonia and marry Alexander's sister, Cleopatra. Just a crazy fun fact to me is that Cleopatra is now so marriageable, right? She's now the sister of Alexander and therefore would be, all of her children would be legitimate heirs to the throne and maybe even competition for Roxana's son. Six. She gets six marriage proposals, including including this Leonidas, from other generals, right? It's crazy. Eumenes realizes that neither Antigonus nor Leonidas are working for him or even with him. And he sneaks out at night, flees to Perdiccas, and it's up to Perdiccas to finally march him into Cappadocia, put him on his throne, and declare him as satrap. Great. Eumenes has some power in Central Asia Minor. Great. He's also wanting to continue to wrap things up with Perdiccas. Perdiccas has realized Ptolemy has run off to Egypt and has a few officers under his control. Antigonus seems to be consolidating things in Asia Minor, Antipater is still consolidating things in Macedonia. Basically, people don't feel like they're listening to Perdiccas, but he's technically the regent and technically in charge. So Perdiccas orders Eumenes to go back to Cappadocia, not just to keep this newly conquered territory safe, but because Neoptolemus, one of the satraps of Armenia, is not on Perdiccas' side and wants to break away. At first, Eumenes tries to bring Neoptolemus around through personal influence, and conversation. Homilia is the Greek word for that. We get the English word homily from that. It's a conversation right, about 
I mean, sermon, I guess, is another term for it, but that sermon also just originally means speech. So when Neoptolemus brings cavalry against him, Eumenes has to raise a force of his own. This is really cool because it feels like a parallel with Agesilaus. Plutarch doesn't bring this up, but I'm just reminded now, having read Agesilaus recently, he raises this force by exempting from taxes any of those who serve in the cavalry. So tax incentives and military bonuses seem to go hand in hand in human nature, right? It's a lot of the medieval system was set up on the, the tax you actually owe me is military service. Ah, then you don't owe me anything in terms of money. So he also gives horses to his most trusted followers and he's able to end up with a cavalry force of over 6,000. But he's essentially, if you can think about it, in Central Asia Minor, Armenia is to his east, the Macedonian powers are to his, and Greek powers are to his west, and so he really is looking at two fronts if both of these leaders don't agree with Perdiccas in the end. He's going to focus on Armenia because Craterus and Antipater, who are both now in Greece, have to worry about the fact that the Athenians have once again revolted. Right. So, but they're able to take down the Athenians pretty quickly. And by the Battle of Cranon, right, they've ended the Lamian War and can now focus on Asia Minor. Ooh, that's bad. Uh, Perdiccas is no help to Eumenes because he's trying to deal with Ptolemy, who ran away to Egypt. And fun fact, took Alexander's body with him and had it buried first in Memphis and then created a tomb for it in Alexandria. So Eumenes is now appointed commander in Armenia and Cappadocia with full powers. And he's basically given those powers so that those men fighting him don't come through him and fight Perdiccas. But it ends... All of this is going to change. These are the shifting sands of the successors of Alexander, by the way. So Perdiccas's brother is sent to serve under Eumenes and refuses, doesn't like him. Afraid his men will be ashamed to fight against these other generals. Remember that these Macedonian troops that are going to be the core of their fighting force are familiar with all of the leaders that they're fighting for and all of the leaders that they're fighting against. So Neoptolemus is summoned by Eumenes and does not obey. Eumenes has to defeat Neoptolemus in battle and finally overwhelmed both his infantry and his cavalry so that he flees. And now he flees to Craterus and Antipater. So now you have NCA, right? These three are all united against Eumenes. And they offer to keep him in his current satrapies if he switches side to Antipater. But Eumenes and Antipater have never gotten along. And Eumenes is very quick to remind Antipater of this. Remember, Eumenes worked under Philip. So did Antipater. They have several decades of enmity between them. That's not going to change now. He does offer to reconcile Craterus and Perdiccas in justice. There he is. That's his motive. It is not ironic. Plutarch is using this seriously. He's fighting for justice. As long as he would fight, as, as long as he was alive, he claims and tells Antipater, he would fight for the injured party, preferring to lose his life over the trust that has been placed in him. Neoptolemus catches up with Craterus, and he begs Craterus to put himself in front of the Macedonians as they go to fight Eumenes. 
His thought is they'll immediately switch sides. Remember that Craterus was a Macedonian man's man. All of the Macedonian troops saw him as faithful not just to Alexander, but to like Macedonianness. He wasn't giving way to these Persian tendencies that a lot of the other officers like Hephaestion and Alexander himself were. Craterus sends Antipater down to fight Ptolemy, so they've split their troops, and he marches on Eumenes himself with Neoptolemus. But Eumenes, again showing his wiliness, finds a way to make it so that most of his troops, nearly all of his troops, do not know that Craterus is who they're lining up against. He convinces them that the only general that they're fighting in this battle is Neoptolemus, again, with some reinforcements. So... He's also outgeneraling Craterus, or at least equaling him in, in generalship, which probably surprises Craterus because he won't allow Craterus to take him by surprise. So they fight, and much to Craterus' surprise, because they don't know, the Macedonian troops don't know they're fighting against Craterus, they, they actually close ranks and fight. Eumenes had gone to the extreme of just lining up the foreign troops against Craterus. So Craterus first charges against the Persian-trained and other foreign troops that Eumenes happened to have with him. Eumenes himself lines up against Neoptolemus. And in spite of Craterus' surprise, he fights boldly and bravely, as he always had in the many battles of Alexander. But he's wounded in this fight, and he falls to the ground. Many men run past him. They don't recognize him. It's one of Eumenes' officers, an enemy, that recognizes him and guards his dying body. But meanwhile, elsewhere on the battlefield, we have this Homeric moment going on. Because Neoptolemus and Eumenes have found each other. Like in the movie The Patriot, where you're like, does this even happen, right? You could almost see them trash-talking each other like Diomedes before he throws his spear or something. They actually engage... He has this crazy comparison, uh, having them clash together like triremes, even though they're in a land battle, on their horses. They knock each other off their horses, wrestle each other off their horses, actually, more correctly, and then draw swords and fall on each other. So they're on the ground, and Neoptolemus tries to rise first, but Eumenes wounds him in the leg while he's recovering his footing. So even though Neoptolemus fights boldly, he ends up dying from a wound in the neck. Eumenes goes in to strip the armor from Neoptolemus, who strikes one last time, wounding Eumenes, but with so little force that it doesn't really do real damage. Eumenes is actually able to immediately remount his horse and help on the other wing of the army. That other wing, where his foreign men were fighting, is where he discovers that Craterus is not just wounded, but is now dying. And he arrives while Craterus is still conscious weeping and lamenting that fortune forced him into conflict with a friend and a comrade. There's that phrase that you might remember from Alexander episode 2, that friend and comrade. That's what Craterus and Eumenes were. It's also what Bucephalus and Alexander were. Crazy. Friend and comrade. So now Eumenes has won two battles in a span of 10 days. That first battle against Neoptolemus was only 10 days before Neoptolemus manages to get all the way to Craterus and convince him to help him take on Eumenes. But he defeated Craterus, the head of Alexander's Macedonian infantry. That's crazy. People are 
so impressed by this accomplishment, and they put it up to his bravery and wisdom, two more virtues, right? We've seen his wisdom for sure in how he sets up the battle, but there must have been wisdom even in how he executed the battle. Unfortunately, there's a downside to this growing fame or reputation, and that's that all of the successors who are still vying for their own particular thrones now hate him. Perdiccas doesn't even live to hear this news. Perdiccas, right, the regent that Eumenes is fighting all these battles for, is killed in a mutiny of his own Macedonians in Egypt, never hearing about Eumenes' victory or the death of Craterus. And so Antipater, this is going to get confusing, so I'm going to try to be clear. Antipater, the regent who had ruled in Macedonia, is now claiming the title of regent. He joins forces with Antigonus. Antigonus was one of the generals who did go with Alexander on his campaigns, right? They joined forces to march on Eumenes. Eumenes is obviously no longer going to fight for the regent if the regent is Antipater. So he's going to try to find a way to fight for and protect the, that the king is going to be Alexander IV or maybe Philip Aridaeus, both of whom are still alive right now. The other leaders are now trying to get Eumenes out of the way in any way they can manage. So they're trying to pay the Macedonians to assassinate him. But the problem is the Macedonian troops now have way more respect for Eumenes than they did even two months ago. He's already starting to act like a king, distributing purple caps and military cloaks. This is an interesting changeover we have where when are, they, when are the men who inherited Alexander's empire going to go from calling themselves regents and satraps to actually admitting that they're kings? And the answer is not yet. They're definitely acting like kings, all of them, but not yet. And Eumenes plays an important role in that transition. But now Eumenes has to face his most important foe all the way to the end of his life, which is Antigonus. We should realize that for the rest of Eumenes' life, he's almost like on the run or in dire straits. And Plutarch wants to tell us why. He cares about men of action and he cares about virtue. And we know that Eumenes was great not because prosperity lifted him up and he was magnanimous and awesome and in prosperity. We saw how magnanimous and constant he was because of the adversity and misfortunes he faced. Adversity is a test of our virtue. It is easy to be virtuous when we're well-fed, well-slept, and have everything going our way. Matter of fact, Plutarch would say, it's not virtue until it's tough. And then when it's tough and it gets hard, then you know that you really have the habit of the virtue. So how do we prepare for this? Eumenes loses some smaller battles to Antigonus. Uh, Antigonus is willing to fight in any way he possibly can. One of the ways is sometimes by bribing sections of the cavalry to desert in the middle of the battle, which is how Antigonus wins in 320. But again, with the wiliness of Eumenes, he finds a way to come back, conceal his movements, and still come back to the battlefield and bury his dead. It's not like he's trying to set up a trophy. He's not trying to claim victory. But when Antigonus realizes that he's doing this, he is pretty impressed with his constancy and boldness. Then Eumenes shows more wisdom and in his leadership when he has an opportunity to seize Antigonus's baggage train. This is an interesting literary foreshadowing of how Eumenes is going to meet his end. But if he seizes the whole of Antigonus's baggage train, 
he his men will be weighed down with spoils and he'll be so much easier to capture and put in a position that will be disadvantageous and fight him there. So he knows that one of his most helpful allies, at least in this current situation, is to run down the clock on Antigonus and let Antigonus stretch his supply lines out. But it's really hard to tell your Macedonian troops when they see the supply lines unguarded and in a nice like flat valley where your cavalry can take them it's really hard to tell him no we're not going to take him because it's going to slow us down guys so he has to lead in two different ways he has to say all right that looks like an opportunity to his macedonian troops while at the same time sending a secret messenger to the leader of antigonus's baggage train and saying hey man get out of dodge go to a place where you are more easily defended And that message arrives just in time. He jumps on his horse, acts like they're going to go take the baggage train. And then he arrives where the baggage train was and they've gotten to a more defensible position. And he has to be like, oh man, we just missed it. But what an understanding of the motivations of his men. These are not soldiers fighting for their homeland. They're fighting for empire and acquisition. They are motivated by a love of gain. If he had denied them a love of gain, he would have very quickly made himself an enemy of his own troops. This is Eumenes' wisdom. Learn how to handle not just your friends, but your enemies and people who could quickly become so. I do want to take a brief pause right here in the show to let you know that season four of the Plutarch podcast is brought to you by the support of Hackett Publishing. This small independent publisher has been serving the humanities since 1972 with affordable translations in everything from Homer to Dante. They've generously offered listeners of this podcast 20% off any title in their catalog and free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. With the coupon code Plutarch, you could add Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Iliad or the Odyssey to your library. You could get the complete works of Plato in a beautiful hardcover, or you could enjoy Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra. For the last two years, I've used Jan Blitz's notes on Julius Caesar to prepare my own students for the Roman context and background on Shakespeare's masterpiece. Really, that play is worth getting just for the introductory matter and the notes. Just go to hackettpublishing.com today and enter the coupon code Plutarch for 20% off and free shipping. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. But for now, we'll go back to the show. But Eumenes is in dire straits for the first and not last time in his life. So he actually allows more and more of his troops to go as he moves to safer and safer and more defensible locations. He's really just going up into the mountains of central Asia Minor. You know that Cappadocia, Lycaonia, that region is very close. But he will not give in to Antigonus. When Antigonus wants to conference about stuff, (laughs) Eumenes has great responses. Antigonus demands to be addressed as if he's a superior. And Eumenes responds, I regard no one as greater than me while I am master of my own sword. And even in the conference, it's not like Eumenes asks for safety or the ability to leave without being killed, you know, safe consort. He is not asking for any of that. He says, give me my satrapies back and restore me to my former powers. That's his negotiating chip. Uh, He does not care and just wants to rule in the way that he thinks is justly what he inherited from Alexander's death. So Antigonus manages to like scare him up into a mountain at the base or a mountain outpost 
or castle at the base of Mount Taurus in a little town or a little area called Nora. And Antigonus can leave a really small force, doesn't have to be large, and just have them besiege it and say, great, starve them out, right? Eumenes is stuck, but he has a lot of grain, water, and salt. It's not going to be the most exciting meals, but Plutarch tells us that even in his virtue, he can season his meals with charming and friendly conversation. That's kind of cool. He tries to keep his men's spirits up, and he keeps their physical exercise up in pretty ingenious ways because it sounds like they're in an area that's maybe one square mile or smaller, which would make it very hard to uh, to actually keep up the strength and stave off boredom for your soldiers and your horses. But again, he's got plenty of wiliness and persuasion. Remember that when you rule tyrannically, you don't rule with persuasion. So Eumenes is still here being a great leader, ruling with words, not with force. So Antipater, remember he was regent. Okay, he dies in 320. We're only a few years after Alexander's death. Three years, right? And he doesn't leave his kingdom to his son, he leaves it to a distinguished officer in Alexander's army, Polyperkin, or Polysperkin, as it's sometimes spelled. So his son Cassander is annoyed, and Antipater has immediately just created this conflict in Macedonia and Greece, where Cassander has to maneuver for power, and this is that same Cassander that we met right at the end of Alexander's life, whom Alexander bashed his head into the wall when he laughed at the Persian obeisance. This Cassander is wily and evil. There's no, like, Plutarch might have a low opinion of Antipater and Antigonus, but he has a very low opinion of Cassander. He did not write any of these guys' lives on purpose. They're not even showing us any natural virtues. So, Antigonus, though, sees this as an opportunity to reconquer the whole of Alexander's empire. Now, we don't have a life of Antigonus, but it's important to remember that at this point, Seleucus, who will be famous for those of you who know the Seleucid Empire, He's not really risen up yet. And so Antigonus controls almost all of what Alexander laid claim to from Babylon all the way east, although, again, those uh, satrapies are a very tenuous hold. And then Antigonus is now claiming Asia Minor and Syria. Ptolemy is eating away at that slowly. He kind of claims Syria. He gets Cyprus at one point and then holds it. But really, Antigonus has the largest chunk right now. And he thinks, if I get Macedon and Greece, I'm legitimate or legitimized, and that's what I need to do. And since Cassander and Polyperkin are going to be fighting about it, I'm going to do that. So he tries to make up with Eumenes to to minimize the number of enemies and wars he's fighting. And Eumenes, he says, if you swear this oath to me, to Antigonus, then I'll let you go free. Sounds easy. Swear an oath to me, then you go free. But in Eumenes, typical secretary, right? He changes the words to the oath and swears an oath to Olympias and the kings. The kings probably being a reference to Philip Herodias and Alexander IV. His Macedonian besiegers see the change, like the cross outs and changing in the names, and they're like, well, yeah, yes, you can take that oath, right? He takes a totally different oath, not swearing... Uh, allegiance to Antigonus and uses it to escape. What's interesting about this is Antigonus knows that Eumenes is a trustworthy guy. He's willing to hold him to his oath. And Eumenes knows that he's a trustworthy guy because he wouldn't just swear the oath 
and then not care about it, as some other characters. We shall see. Swear all kinds of things, and then go back on it. So Eumenes escapes, and Antigonus is bitter, because he had his enemy in his hands. And this is really almost exactly halfway through the life. He had his enemy right there in his hands, and his Macedonian troops allowed him to alter the form of the oath and escape anyway. So Polyperkin is now who he's listening to because this seems to be the the person now taking care of the regent and Roxana, right? Philip Aridaeus, Roxana, and Alexander IV were trying to keep track of them the whole time. And he commands him to go back to Cappadocia and fight Antigonus. He can use the treasury from Quinda to replenish the money he's got there, and he's got a couple other officers who can work under him named Teutimus and Antigenes, who are the officers of the Silver Shields. This is a group that has been with Philip and Alexander from the beginning. Some of these men, we'll find out in a later battle, are 60 years old or older, and they're still bearing shields and fighting in Philip and Alexander's armies. I mean, this is the third generation now that they're fighting for. It's crazy. Anyway, these two commanders hate Eumenes. They pretend to be friendly with him. And Eumenes realizes they hate him. And so not to anger them, he actually refuses to take the money. Instead, he uses superstition as a form of persuasion. Again, with the wiliness. He tells them that he has a dream in which Alexander has a royal tent with a throne in it, and he tells Eumenes to conduct all their planning in that tent, and they'll have Alexander's blessing. So that's what they do. They make a tent, they dedicate it to Alexander, they put a golden throne in it, and it becomes a neutral meeting place where they can plan. So it feels like this guy's motto should be, I'll find a way or make one. He has already surrounded himself with enemies and come out on top more than once, more than twice, and not always through force of arms. But another point I think Plutarch is making here is the inherent instability of these, quote, satraps fighting for the power, when in reality they all know they're fighting for the kingship. The instability that we saw at the end of Alexander's reign redounds and grows even bigger, like a tidal wave or a snowball effect going downhill. As these generals jockey for position, and then fight each other. So where are we? Eumenes continues to gather around him as many allies of the true successors of Alexander as he can. But a lot of these allies are really opportunists. And I don't think he's blind to the fact that they're opportunists. And he seems to be the only one motivated by justice. So the satrap of Persia, who had been a distinguished officer in Alexander's lifetime, becomes Eumenes' next major ally, but an opportunistic one. So Plutarch breaks from the narrative to kind of point out to us at this time the vices that have infected all, or almost all, you could say maybe all except Eumenes', all of the successors of Alexander, the Diadochoi, the next generation. He says they think and act like tyrants. Mm, There's that theme again from season four. With barbaric arrogance. Arrogance is a key word in Aristotle's ethics. 
And one that Plutarch's going to want us to keep in mind here. It's the excess or the too muchness of honesty. Honesty is the mean between the extremes. And the one, the deficiency, the not enough, is called irony. I think Plutarch would probably agree with me when I would say irony is going to be a deficiency in most philosophers, but not in most great men. They're not going to be tempted to think less of themselves like Socrates did so that he could learn from others. And they called that Socrates' irony. Nor are these generals of Alexander who just conquered or helped him conquer a larger extent of empire than the world had yet known going to be tempted towards honesty naturally either and a realistic understanding of themselves. Instead, they're going to head towards arrogance, but an arrogance that Plutarch calls barbaric. And I don't know if he means in imitation of the barbarians or just because they conquered what the Greeks themselves would consider barbarians and so they contracted that kind of arrogance. It's a different flavor of arrogance. It's not that Greeks are incapable of arrogance, but that this is maybe a Persian-flavored arrogance. And the last thing is their harshness is what comes about towards each other. They no longer act like, remember, they had been called, many of these men, had been called the companion cavalry, the companions, the equals, the friends of Alexander. And when they act this harshly, it makes them hard to reconcile. The last fact that makes tyranny almost inevitable is now the way the soldiers are treated. The constant gifts to the soldiers mean that they can be easily corrupted to follow the highest bidder and not the best leader. But it's at this point that we also see humanes can borrow intelligently as well. As a matter of fact, he borrows from his enemies so that they're less inclined to kill him while he owes them a lot of money. I mean, he's borrowing sums that we saw Alexander paying out to his troops. So this is not, hey, can I have 20 bucks? This is, I can't kill that guy. He owes me a million dollars. Wily. Crafty. Crafty tactic. So, Eumenizo is technically sole commander. And he has the respect of his troops. He has not yet had to bribe them too often. But there are many men who have it out for Eumenes who are technically on his side. But whenever Antigonus, the real danger, arrives as Eumenes falls further and further back into the heartland of Persia, falling back towards what he thinks are his ostensible allies, whenever Antigonus arrives on the scene, all of his men, and actually most of the leaders who want him dead, fall in line and listen to him because he, well, is the best general, and so he's worth listening to. Even though by the time they get to Persia, Pusestus, yeah, it's a rough name, but that's what it is. Pusestus, the satrap of Persia, is expecting that he will replace Eumenes or be ranked higher than Eumenes as commander-in-chief. Primarily because of that barbaric arrogance, he gave his Macedonian soldiers feasts and banquets and rewards before they had fought anything. (laughs) 
But the thing is, even when Eumenes gets so sick that he has to be carried around in a litter, seems like he might die just of natural causes here, which would be a big win for Antigonus. The men still demand that Eumenes lead them. And so even though he can't lead from the front, he's carried around on this litter to the front ranks, and then he falls back to the back to kind of guide the battle from what he can see. And so when Antigonus first hears that Eumenes is sick, he thinks this is his opportunity to just crush him. But then when he rolls up, he's amazed to see the army ready for him. But then he laughs because when he looks behind the army, he can see a litter being carried back and forth behind the ranks. And he realizes that he's still it's still Antigonus versus Eumenes. Eumenes isn't sitting back in his tent, taking it easy, trying to rest. But at this point, we're up in the mountains between modern Iraq and Iran. And winter is setting in, which means you need to be not just in a fortified position or an easily defensible position, but one in which you have enough supplies to feed your troops. And so these large armies now gathered in these inhospitable mountains have to make decisions about where they're going to spend the winter. And they end up spreading themselves. Eumenes and his allies end up spreading themselves over a 100-mile long line. Which, when Antigonus hears of this, he thinks, oh, it's worth fighting in the winter to take advantage of this opportunity. He has so much trouble, though, with the cold and the wind that he's forced to burn fires that are visible from far away. So it kind of announces his arrival. And even in spite of that, Pusestus just wants to run away. He wants to go further and further. He, they, so many of these were generals of Alexander, but they act more like Darius now that Alexander's gone. That just seems to me like a Darius move. Fall further back. We'll eventually beat him. Eumenes promises the other officers who are freaking out, all right, give me three days, and I bet I can handle this. So he sets out in the direction that he knows Antigonus is coming from, and he sets up fires along the mountainside that are visible from where Antigonus is, sets them up all over, and makes it look like the whole army has already gathered together from their 100-mile-long line, and convinces Antigonus that this is probably not the opportunity he thought it was. Now, you might be thinking, how much time can that really buy them? Well, it turns out to be enough, because Antigonus wants to get his men warm, rested, and fed So he changes his course and takes the longer route, you could say, through the towns, rather than going straight through the mountains at where he knows they are. Also, he's probably tired of doing that. But as his scouts go and scout out where the fires were, the scouts come back and they realize those were just fires. There were no men, no horses, no troops, no signs of a massive army, except for burned out fires. So Antigonus has been tricked again. By Eumenes. But the tricks can only buy him time. They cannot win all the battles. So we have the last speech of Eumenes versus Antigonus called the Battle of Gabin here in central Persia, heartland. And at this point, Eumenes is picked as sole commander. But there's so many officers underneath him that hate him that they form a conspiracy before the battle even starts with as many of the satraps as they can. Here's their plan. We're going to use him in battle to win against Antigonus, and then we're going to kill him. Two people warn Eumenes about this plot. 
And they don't warn him because they're his friends. They warn him because he owes them money. Oh, comes back to him, right? So Eumenes has to get his affairs in order because not only is he risking his life like normal in battle, but he is surrounded by enemies in spite of the fact that he's leading some of them against the, quote, enemy. Once he writes his will, he now has a decision to make. Does he run away, try to reclaim his satrap in Asia Minor and make peace with whoever ends up winning this battle, which in all likelihood without him there would be Antigonus, certainly sounds like, or does he stay and then try to circumvent or prevent his death at the hands of his allies? He decides to stay, and the men he leads into battle are these silver shields, who are Philip and Alexander's oldest infantrymen. And Plutarch claims that there's no one in the ranks of these men below the age of 60. Some are in their 70s. When these old men charge in the battle, they shout at the younger men that you're fighting against your fathers, right? And they actually crush the phalanx of Antigonus. But Antigonus's cavalry has a bit of a, an advantage, and then the terrain kicks up this white dust, and Antigonus ends up, in his cavalry charge, when he pushes Pusestus back, he ends up falling upon the baggage train of the silver shields, the baggage train of the whole army. But he ends up getting a lot of the riches that the silver shields have accrued over their lifetime of military action, first under Philip, then under Alexander. They have not yet returned home, these silver shields, right? They were in Babylon when Alexander died a few years ago, and here they are, you know, 100 miles east of Babylon, still fighting in the former Persian Empire. So Teutimus, one of the leaders of the Silver Shields, he immediately opens negotiations for the baggage train. He needs to get it back. That is literally all their stuff. So he's not worried about them like starving or being having to fall back to a more fortified position. These men have lost decades worth of stuff that they've accrued, at least since Alexander lit their baggage train on fire just before marching into India. So let's let's call it at least one decade, right? But Antigonus, in this negotiation, says, give me Eumenes, and you're going to have your baggage train back, which they do. Eumenes, the general that just led them into battle, into the victory that they just won, they hand him over. They physically grab him, they surround him, physically grab him, remove his sword, and tie him up. He doesn't resist much, but he does ask for permission to speak. And he basically tells them what I just told you. He says, you surrender your victory with your general. And if you were really manly, you'd kill me here, since my blood's already on your hands. And Antigonus only wants me dead anyway, not alive. If you can't kill me, be manly enough to crush me under your elephants. Or loose my own hands and I'll do it. If you kill me, I'll absolve you for this fault. Many are moved to sadness by this, probably not the Silver Shields, because they want their stuff back. And so they call him a pest from the Chersonesis. Remember, that's that area near Troy. Who goaded the Macedonians into infinite wars and then robbed them of all their winnings. That is, the baggage train. So they really are acquisitive. They just want their stuff. And they're willing to sacrifice whoever it is they need to get it. And so Eumenes is handed over to Antigonus. 
not he's not brought into Antigonus's presence. Antigonus won't speak to him or see him. And he tells his men to guard him as they would guard a lion or an elephant. Noble and dangerous creatures both. Eventually, Eumenes is given a little bit of clemency and his chains are taken off and he's given a personal servant. And we think maybe Antigonus is going to find a place for him. Although remember, this is the second time he's in Antigonus's power. So I highly doubt Antigonus is going to let him go. And I think Eumenes was right. But he really deliberates for several days. And in part because his son, to whom or with whom he was very close, as we'll see in two more episodes, in the life of Demetrius, Demetrius is one of the few in the camp of Antigonus who is begging for him not to kill Eumenes. The vast majority of people just want him dead. He's caused over a year of problems. He's resisted Antigonus every step of the way, and Antigonus has had to fight several battles on his way across the Euphrates and across the Tigris and into the heartland of Persia, almost reconquering so much of what Alexander had already won from his fellow generals. So he's going to place most of that blame at Eumenes' feet. It's unclear exactly how Eumenes dies. One story has it that he is ordered to be starved to death. It feels really harsh. So Antigonus's men deny him food for three days, but then Antigonus has to move out. And so they break up camp and men are sent to just finish the job. They can't wait for, you know, two more weeks that it's going to take for him to die. Not Plutarch, but another source, Cornelius Nepos, claims that his guards just kill him without Antigonus's knowledge and then form him, inform him afterwards. So they maybe take it out of his hands. This is maybe like a Thomas Beckett death, where Henry of England says, Will no one rid me of this obnoxious priest? And then three of his personal knights take it into their hands to go to Canterbury and murder Thomas in the cathedral. It might be like that. His body is brought to Antigonus, who burns it, collects the ashes, and gives it to his wife and children. So we end different lives in different ways. But if you recall, sometimes we don't even end with the death of the character. We end with the death of the character who killed the main character. This is one of those lives. We did that in Dion, where we saw his perfidious Athenian friend met his end, serving as a tyrant of the Syracusans. We met it in the life of Pelopidas, where we saw the end of the tyrant Alexander of Pharae, not to be confused with Alexander the Great. And here again, the silver shields really are all held accountable. So we have a collective enemy. So what are we going to do with them? Antigonus does not add them to his army and continue to use them in future battles. Instead, he sends them deeper into the Persian Empire under the satrap of Arachosia, which would be modern Afghanistan more or less, with orders to wear them out there so that they will never return home to Greece. And so even by Eumenes' worst enemy in life, Plutarch sees some poetic justice in the fact that his murderers get their just deserts in this lifetime at the hands of Antigonus. So where does that leave us? 
well, aren't we glad we didn't conquer a huge empire and then try to let our generals all fight for it after we died? I think there's a couple things to look for and apply in our own lives. One is that being the underdog or being underestimated is not always bad, right? Eumenes is thought to be a little Greekling, a secretary, not a serious threat. And that's in part what makes Craterus go up against him. And then realizing that he's such a big threat is what kills Craterus and Neoptolemus, the follow-through. So it's good to be underestimated. The other fact, though, is that once you're underestimated and you prove people wrong, there's a level of humiliation and backlash that you have to be ready for. Craterus didn't stay alive to be humiliated, but the others who may have thought themselves equal to or better than Craterus had to explain to themselves, why is it that maybe Eumenes can beat me too? And Antigonus did not win every battle against Eumenes. On a deeper level, though, we're presented with virtues and vices that are worth holding on to no matter what. Eumenes will not change sides, even as the numbers and the lineup changes seemingly day by day, but it's really year by year. His allies are not the same from year to year, and he's dead within 11 years of Alexander's death. The last two virtues that are worth admiring in Eumenes are certainly his wisdom, which we could call wiliness as much as anything else. There's a practical level to his wisdom that is not to be underestimated. How can you use your enemies to your advantage? How can you set yourself up so that the incentives and constraints on someone else, more than their conscience, right? Not relying on their conscience, setting it up so that there are external incentives and external restraints on their behavior that you can rely on a great deal more than an evil man's conscience. And then there's his bravery, last of all, especially in the way he faces death. And he faces death more than once, not just in every time he enters battle. All of the successors of Alexander do that. But he could have really lost hope and become a depressed soul when he was hemmed in at Nora in Asia Minor. With a small amount of troops, he kept them active, he kept them engaged, he kept them as happy as you could in the circumstances, and on top of that, he kept his wits about him long enough to escape when given the opportunity. That was his bravery there, and we're going to see a strong contrast with the will to live changing when you become a prisoner. But his will to live even continues, and he's able to fight a battle knowing that he's leading men some of whom have already betrayed him. That's a great deal of bravery, to turn your back on and try to lead men who want you dead. Pretty impressive. So, when we don't have life and death goals, I think a lot of the reason Plutarch shows us these men is because he wants to encourage us of the timid souls that our lives are not on the line nearly as often, but we really are not brave with the risks we take. We care as much or more about our reputation than we do about our life. And I am right there with you. But I wonder, right, am I willing to risk 
to be brave enough to speak up for justice, to be wise enough to find the right words, and to be brave enough to say it at the right time. And with that reflection, we will close today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Be sure to give the old five-star review if you get the chance. And I hope that I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives influence yours. Thank you.